Hey, mic check, mic check. I had to uh, reinstall my audio software this morning, right before I went live. It, it, I was updating it and it failed. And then like the file got corrupted or something. So I need a mic check from the chat. Can you guys hear me all right? And do I sound normal? I think I think everything is okay. I think my save settings survived and got imported or whatever. And it's back to how it was, but I just need to make sure. Okay. Everybody says, okay, thank you. Excellent. I was a bit worried I would go live and it would have a, it would all be screwed up. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much. Good morning. This is just human number 244. And we have Trump court case stuff to cover. And we have a, a short update in the Seth Rich case again. So it's kind of like today's morning show is going to be a continuation of Monday, pretty much. That's what you're in for. And I'm a little bit excited about it. We got some good stuff. Uh, good stuff happening in the Florida docs case. And it seems to me, um, my audio in my ears is different. I got to figure something out. Uh, it seems to me that the docs case is really taking center stage right now. And that excites me. Uh, that's of the two of the many Trump cases that there are. The Docs case is my favorite. <laughs> it's the one with the most redactions, which is uh, is makes it more tantalizing. <laughs> makes it interesting. So I see my lava lamp is also excited for it right there. Calm down, lava lamp. Uh, so before we get into it, make sure you got a cup of coffee. Because we're going to go through some docs. And if you're not following me, hit my link tree or the links in the description of the show. You can find me on all these social media sites. And, uh, you know, I just triggered a bunch of people over on X. So um, they haven't quite come in yet. But I'm, I'm sure uh, that as soon as the people who react before they understand, read what I post, uh, they'll be on it. Because you guys may have seen this post. I'm going to start off with this. Let's have some fun to start off with, with right here. Let's have some fun. So RNC, reports are that the RNC chairwoman, Ronna Romney McDaniel, is retiring after the South Carolina primary. There are also reports that she offered to retire, that she met with Trump last Monday at Mar-a-Lago, and that she offered to retire from the RNC after the South Carolina primary. There are mixed reports on it. But let's just assume it's true. Let's just assume that it's true that um, Ronna Romney McDaniel is leaving the RNC. Recall that she's someone Trump has endorsed more than once for the job. Recall that we have won the presidency twice, although one time it got stolen from us, and the Republican Party has expanded its foothold in Congress while she's been in charge. Not every election cycle, but we don't always trust the election cycles, right? The Republicans did win the House last term. So there's a report that she's leaving, and there are also reports that Kevin McCarthy is a dark horse candidate to replace her. And Matt Gates put out this, this post and he has everybody's head exploding where he writes, I fully endorse Kevin McCarthy for RNC chair. Kevin is well organized and a very high revenue fundraiser. 
He will also be well-liked by the RNC committee. The RNC chair doesn't make any policy decisions, set any agenda, or negotiate against Democrats ever. Kevin would be terrific. Now, a lot of people are thinking that this is a troll post from Matt Gates, and it may well be. Matt Gates may be just trolling and having a ton of fun, but he's right. Even if he's trolling, guys, he's right. McCarthy would be perfect for the job. And if it's true he's a dark horse candidate, then McCarthy leaving Congress early makes a lot more sense. Remember that McCarthy left before the end of his term. And it was characterized as, oh, he suffered a humiliating defeat. And so he's, he was so embarrassed that he had to leave Congress. I don't buy that for a minute. I don't buy that at all. But everybody needs to understand here that this isn't about who we like. This is about who can do the job, okay? And the RNC chairperson, Kevin's right. The RNC chairperson doesn't set any policy. The RNC chairperson doesn't do anything about the party platform or anything like that. The, the RNC um, organizes and fundraises. And that's pretty much it. And guess what Kevin McCarthy is really good at? Organizing and fundraising. His track record of fundraising is phenomenal while he's been in the Republican Party. And even though we hate the GOP establishment, and even though we hate the elites, and we hate the donor class, do we really hate taking their money? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I really don't mind. Um, I really don't mind taking their money and then putting it to good use. And that's the main job of the chairperson. So I think McCarthy really, I think Gates is 100% right, even if he's trolling. McCarthy would be the best person to do this. And like I said, this makes a lot of sense. Kevin McCarthy left Congress early in order to be available to run for the RNC chairship, chairmanship. And we all know that McCarthy and Trump have worked together. McCarthy was leader in the House because of Trump. I'm convinced that McCarthy works for Trump. 100% he works for Trump. And I just think it's hilarious that Matt Gates is the person who points this out. So if you would like to go to my ex account right now and agree with me emphatically, because you know I'm right, whether you like McCarthy or not, feel free to. Or if you want to jump over there and uh, uh, get triggered, <laughs> you're welcome to do that too. I really don't care. Um, because the points remain. The points remain. Uh, McCarthy would be perfect for the job. Uh, and boy, would it be fun. Also, there's something to be said for having some opposition within the party. Um, you know, Trump is the brand, right? The Republican Party is the Trump Party. And the brand of the Trump Party, I mean, of the Republican Party is Trump. The platform of the party is Make America Great Again. Those are all things that Trump sets. Those are all things Trump controls, not the RNC chair. Have, has anybody in the history of the Republican Party ever looked to the RNC chair for guidance on what the party stands for? No. No. 
The only people who care about the RNC chair are the organizers and the fundraisers, who McCarthy already knows well and has extracted lots of money from. Uh, so regardless of who the chair is, Trump runs the party. And there's something to be said for having a little bit of opposition between the leader of the party and Trump and the America First Caucus and the RNC and have a little bit of contrast there, a little bit of strife, a little bit of struggle and kayfabe and wrestling match going on. There's something to be said for that. So I like it. And um, I, I see someone pointing out, as people always do, People love pointing this out. McCarthy torpedoed MAGA candidates in favor of GOPE candidates in the last two election cycles, says Labeling 66. And that is something I have heard many, many times. And let me tell you something. Just because someone is America first or MAGA running in a primary does not mean they're the best candidate. That's a fact. Just because, just because someone is MAGA or America first doesn't mean that they are the best candidate for that job. It doesn't mean they can win. And so, yep, there were America first and MAGA candidates in the last two, more than that, in the last several election cycles, who on policy, we agree with a lot more than the person who got the money, but those candidates couldn't win. The person who's in charge of donating out the money and getting someone elected to those seats has to weigh how much that person is in agreement with the party's platform and then how what are their chances of winning. If there's a more GOP establishment candidate in that primary and their chances of winning are far greater than the MAGA or America First candidate, it would be a waste of money to give it to the MAGA or America First candidate. It has to be that it has to be that combination of the most America First candidate who can win, not just the most America First candidate. If we keep playing the purity game and applying a purity test to every single race, we'll we're gonna keep losing. And that's just, that's just the reality on the ground. Um, and it shows where, you know, it's great that we have MAGA and America First candidates in the primaries because guess what they do? Even if they don't win the primary, they push the other candidate to, to their side. They pull the, or I should say pull, they pull the other candidates that are in there to be more America First in order to try and win their primary. And then they also represent a threat to that person's office while that person is serving if they can remain relevant, right? This isn't, this isn't like a, you can't, you can't, the purity test doesn't work. It's the most America first candidate who can win every time. And that's, that's just the reality of the ground game. But people don't like to hear that. And people don't like to hear McCarthy is uh, still a player because everybody's bought into a bunch of fake news about McCarthy, a whole bunch of fake news. McCarthy's one of those people that's popular to hate. And um, people are going to hate him no matter what. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many seats he wins. It doesn't matter that we won the House last no or in November 2022, does it? Have you noticed that? 
it doesn't matter that we literally took back the house in November 2022. It's popular to hate McCarthy and it's popular to hate Ronna Romney McDaniel. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so my socials are here. Feel free to go re on any of them. <laughs> also, if you like the show, hit the thumbs up. Um, if you don't like the show, hit the thumbs up anyway, because you're here. I mean, you might, you must like it enough to hit the thumbs up. Uh, my support links are here on my link tree and in the description of the show, wherever you're watching it. And, uh, ko-fi.com. You can keep my coffee cup full. I definitely need coffee. Had some sick kids this week and, uh, wife is out of town. So I'm running a little low on sleep, uh, which I, I don't know. I think I can make it through this show, though. Uh, I think I have enough coffee to make it through this show. Uh, Benson Honey Farms, if you guys want some delicious, all-natural, raw, pure honey. Here's where you do the purity test, guys. This is where the purity test matters. Honey. Your food. That's where the purity test matters, okay? Get yourself some Benson Honey. It is the best honey you'll ever have. From an America First family. He's a longtime supporter of the show. If you use the affiliate link and you get some honey over there, they'll kick a few dollars my way. Also, bootleg products. Purity test matters here, too. They have fresh ingredients, no preservatives, no added, you know, natural flavors, artificial flavors. It's just real, it's just real food. I cook with it every week. My family loves it. My extended family loves it. And everybody I've heard from who bought some stuff from Bootleg loves it too. Their chili, this is the right time of year for chili. Their chili is exceptional. Uh, but all of their seasonings are also good too. I use their seasonings to make fajitas all the time and tacos. Um, and I use it on my steaks, my chicken. I cook a lot at home. And uh, yeah, everything is good. Their salsas are amazing. Um, in fact, I'm probably going to make some nachos today. So... Bootleg products, same deal. Use my affiliate link. You buy it, make a purchase over here. They kick a few dollars my way. They got a coupon code up here. Bootleg at checkout. You get free shipping on orders over $50. They also do something that's pretty cool. They, um, instead of shipping everything in jars, they ship it in like a, like double bagged. And that way it reduces shipping cost anyway. And then I just open it up and put it in a, uh, like a, a sealed Tupperware container, or you can put it in a Mason jar. That's how their sauces and their chilies are anyway. Um, but their seasonings come in their own thing. I really like their seasonings. Um, of all the things that I get from bootleg, their seasonings are what I use the most often. And I've stopped buying any other seasoning. Like I've, I've tossed out all the other stuff I used to use from the store, all the big corporate stuff. And I just use bootleg stuff. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Manly Cans Valentine's Day is coming up just like two weeks away or less, a week and a half, less. Hopefully you have a manly man in your life and that manly man would probably like a manly can. I like the Dapper Man can. That's my favorite, but there are lots of other cans over here. Pick one out for your man and they also have, your man is a guy who likes really spicy stuff. They have bootleg chili, 
Is it the yes yeah, death punch? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Salsa. It's the four pepper death punch salsa is included in the smoking hot can. So if you're into that or your man is into that, this would be a good one to get him. Same deal with them. You, you buy a manly can, they kick a few dollars my way. I and then there's merch and there's Venmo. So with all of that out of the way. Let's get to these cases. Um, let's warm up with Seth Rich case real quick. This is very much a continuation of what we were talking about on Monday with the Seth Rich case where Huddleston, the plaintiff, is trying to get interim uh, attorney's fees awarded because this case is dragged on and the FBI has lied and it's cost $170,000 basically for this FOIA case. And it's ridiculous. And it wouldn't have cost that much if the FBI hadn't played all these games and delayed, delayed, delayed and, um, all this stuff. Right. So they're arguing over this right here. Now, the main thing going over here is we're waiting for the judge to decide about a couple things with regard to the FBI failing to uh, comply with the judge's order. But while we wait, there's this other battle happening for attorney's fees. And I just find it pretty interesting, um, especially since they're referencing another case that Huddleston brought. Um, and I'm interested to see what happens because I want, honestly, I want, I want to see Huddleston, Huddleston prevail and get some money um, awarded to him uh, so that he can keep on fighting because this is really expensive. Um, imagine spending $170,000 trying to get access to um, foyable material, stuff that should be foyable in regards to Seth Rich's laptop and emails. So this is... Um, the FBI coming, but we read the FBI and Huddleston's filings on this. This is the F FBI coming back with what's called a sir reply in further opposition of Huddleston's motion for interim payment of costs and attorney's fees. This is what the FBI has to say back. So this, this really, there's three things that are on the judge's table that I'm aware of that I can think of right now where he has to rule. One of them is this for attorney's fees. The other one is what to do with the FBI since they failed to uh, comply with the judge's order and give the timeline or propose a timeline for disclosure of information on the laptop. And then the order on um, whether the FBI has to comply with Huddleston's request to search emails for foyable emails that mention things like pizza and uh, any sort of employee issues with with uh, Seth Rich and the DNC or the Clinton campaign, um, emails that mention Podesta, emails that mention a number of other WikiLeaks, Assange, a number of other things. And he says, in plaintiff's reply and support, he makes two points. First, he argues that he has substantially prevailed in this litigation, notwithstanding the fact that the court has resolved most issues in this case in the FBI's favor finding the searches were adequate and the withholdings and redactions were overwhelmingly appropriate in accordance with FOIA's exemptions. Much of the discussion, which focuses on prior litigation in the Eastern District of New York, 
does not bear on whether the plaintiff has identified exceptional circumstances warranting the award of interim fees in this case. As explained in the defendant's response in prior briefing, the plaintiff has not done so, and the court should deny plaintiff's request for attorney's fees or interim fees. The second argument in the response is that defendants waive the ability to contest the reasonableness of the fees requested by plaintiff's counsel. Specifically, the plaintiff argues that in the defendant's response, the defendants requested permission to brief the reasonableness of fees separately. But the defendants have not made such a request here. Plaintiff is incorrect. Defendants have preserved the ability to contest the reasonableness of the fees in two ways. First, they incorporated and relied on their prior opposition to plaintiff's motion for interim payment of costs and attorney's fees. Defendants specifically identified docket entries 5966. In reply, plaintiff acknowledged that in 59, the defendant's response in opposition to plaintiff's motion for interim payment of fees and costs, defendant requested permission to brief reasonableness fees separately. Thus, by incorporating those pleadings, defendants preserved the issue. So they're saying, look, just because the last filing we didn't bring up whether or not the fees should actually be $164,000 doesn't mean that we can't challenge that. We already noted that we don't, dis- we don't agree with it and we reserve the right to challenge it and we can. Second, defendants specifically requested to rebrief the reasonableness of the fees separately in their response should the court be inclined to grant those fees. So the FBI is saying, look, if the court does grant these fees, then we're going to challenge whether or not they should be $164,000. So contrary to the plaintiff's incorrect representation, defendants did preserve the issue. Further, as defendants have previously explained, addressing the issue of the reasonableness of fees as a second step makes sense. Only after plaintiff is deemed eligible and entitled to the fees. So that's understandable. The FBI is saying, look, there's no point in us addressing the reasonableness of the fees until the court has said that they act- the plaintiff is actually qualified to get them. That makes sense. Here, plaintiff has not shown he is eligible for and entitled to the interim fees. That's their argument. I kind of dis- disagree. I kind of do. I'm no expert, though. As such, the court should deny their request. So the FBI felt the need, this is the, that's it. So the FBI felt the need to come back and say, oh, 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 hold up. We'll challenge those fees and the reasonableness of the amount when the court, de- when and if the court decides that he's actually eligible for them and entitled to them. So just a quick update. I know it's not the most exciting thing them arguing over attorney's fees. But I can't help but I want to pay attention to it. One, I pay attention to everything on that docket. But but two, I really want him to get some fees. I really, I want Huddleston to be able to afford to continue this battle, right? So, all right, now the main story. Okay, so we've been waiting since January, or first week of January uh, for the United States Court of Appeals for the, for the D.C. District to give an answer 
as to whether or not Trump has immunity. And they have come back and said he does not. They agree with Judge Chukin. They agree with Judge Chukin, per curiam, right here. Let's see. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, here, actually, I may just comment on it. I may just comment on this whole thing. Um, they say, we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interest in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing this prosecution to proceed. We conclude that, quote, concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, compel the rejection of his claim of immunity in this case. We also have considered his contention that he is entitled to categorical immunity from criminal liability for any assertedly official action that he took as president, a contention that is unsupported by precedent history, or the text and structure of the Constitution. Finally, we are unpersuaded by his argument that this prosecution is barred by double jeopardy principles. Accordingly, the order of the district court is affirmed. So they have agreed with Judge Chukin that a president's immunity, specifically Trump's immunity, is no. It doesn't apply here. They also note that the brief from Attorney General Edwin Meese that we read on this show that challenges the appointment of Special Counsel Smith as invalid. Um, well, here, I'll just read it. Former Attorney General, General Edwin Meese III and others argue that the appointment of Special Counsel Smith is invalid because, one, no statute authorizes the position Smith occupies. And two, the special counsel is a principal officer who must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. On appeal from a collateral order, we generally lack jurisdiction to consider issues that do not independently satisfy the collateral oral doctrine unless we can exercise pendant jurisdiction over the issue. Because the appointments clause issue was never presented to nor decided by the district court, there is no order on the issue that could even arguably constitute a collateral order for us to review. Additionally, the exercise of pendant jurisdiction would be improper here, assuming without deciding that pendant jurisdiction is ever available in criminal appeals. In other words, we can't look at that or decide it because there's nothing like it before us. We don't have, it's not in our jurisdiction and we're not commenting on it. So they've set that aside, saying this this isn't in our purview. We can't look at this. It wasn't brought up to us correctly. Um, we'll see if SCOTUS looks at it. Now, nobody is surprised that the D.C. Court of Appeals affirmed Judge Chukin's order. Nobody is surprised by this. Um. It does represent a psychological, we talked about a psychological victory for us last Monday 
in this case being off of Judge Shutkin's calendar while it's under appeal, officially off the calendar. Well, now the left, the Dems, the TDS-riddled ghouls, they get their psychological victory here, right? They get a psychological victory out of this. And I may, at some point, read this whole thing and try and understand their argument. But I kind of, I'm debating whether or not I really want to, because I don't think this is, I'm not sure. It matters, but I'm more interested in where this is headed, which is the Supreme Court. We all know that this is headed to the Supreme Court. Um, Myself and many others have said, ever since it went under appeal, ever since Shutkin dismissed Trump's presidential immunity, everybody has said this is headed to SCOTUS. And it didn't matter if Jack Smith won at the appeals level or if Trump won at the appeals level. The opposing party was going to appeal to SCOTUS, and Trump has said he will appeal to SCOTUS. So this decision right here doesn't mean that suddenly the D.C. case is back on the schedule, they're holding hearings, they're making filings, everything is like back on. It doesn't mean that at all, because Trump's going to appeal to SCOTUS, and it's still going to be under appeals, and it's going to be out of her jurisdiction, and it's still going to be the same. It's still like on pause basically while we wait for SCOTUS to hear it. So this case is basically, it's kind of on ice. I'm sure a few things will happen, but it's kind of on ice. So we have a lot of time and I may at some point decide to delve into this on the show and better understand what their arguments are here and why they arrived at the decision they arrived at. Um, but really, I kind of want to wait for SCOTUS and just see what SCOTUS says. Now, I want to grab some commentary from some other people who actually are attorneys. Which I am not. I'm just very interested in this. So, Jonathan Turley, one of my favorites... His comments on it are interesting to me. This this thread is kind of broken. Um, let me see if it'll stack correctly if I just click on this right here. Looks like it won't. Just a moment. Twitter broke his thread. Let me see if this thread reader app caught it all. It did. Okay, excellent. Okay. So Charlie says, notably, the panel rejected the claim of many critics that there should be no appellate review. However, it categorically rejects the claim of Trump that he is entitled to immunity as a private citizen. The question is now whether Smith will again seek to curtail the time or options for Trump in appealing his decision. Trump has weeks to file an en banc review. He has previously, he has previously unsuccessful in that effort. He was, was previously unsuccessful in that effort. Crunching the numbers, this is Jonathan Turley's opinion. I did see disagreements on the timing of this. But Jonathan Turley's opinion is that Trump can seek corrections in the short term, but even without a correction to the opinion, he has 45 days to seek an en banc where the government is a party. He then has 90 days after the rejection of any en banc decision. So even without factoring in review time for the circuit... Trump could extend his, this process 
135 days absent a successful move to expedite. The 90-day period alone would put a petition into May. Any rejection of appeals without an expedited calendar puts this into the summer. This is without delays or successful grant on by the D.C. Circuit, which is unlikely, or the Supreme Court, which is uncertain. After that appellate line is tied off, the parties would have to return to the trial court to resume pre-trial work. So let's say, let's say like all of this stuff plays out with the Supreme Court and appealing it and all of these process stuff. And let's say Trump takes the maximum amount, number of days. You know, he tries to drag this out as much as possible to delay, delay, delay the trial happening. However, that works out. It still has to go back to Judge Chutkin's courtroom, and then they have to get back to the pretrial work. They have to decide on jury questionnaires. They have pretrial motions. They have to send out the questionnaires. They have to, like, there's all this other work to prepare for trial. So there's no way this happens quickly at all. We're talking about months and months and months to prepare for trial. Remember, this thing has been. The appeal started at like the last, uh, like the last week of December or first week of January, whatever that was. Now, so we've lost like thirty to forty-five days. This stuff, um, this stuff will. St we're definitely going to take another thirty to forty-five days if it gets all kicked back to Chukin and starts all. It picks up where it left off, right? Like we're still going to be thirty to forty-five days of uh, preparation to make up there. And then that was that appeal started three months out from when the trial should happen. So we're still talking about we're 90 days. If so let's say all of this went to let's say everything, all the appeals worked out, SCOTUS denied it, appellate court denied it, like or affirmed Chukin, whatever. Let's say that everything went back to Chukin's court tomorrow. They would still need 90 days to prepare for trial in that range, 60 to 90 days to prepare for the trial. And that's without delays and all that stuff. Turley says, while Smith will likely try to expedite, the question is why the Supreme Court would suddenly see a need to curtail the time or process when it previously denied such efforts. Remember, Smith tried to go around and jump it up to the Supreme Court in order to make things move faster. And the Supreme Court was like, no. There is no longer a scheduled trial on the docket and Smith is the prevailing party. That is not ideal for a motion to expedite. Notably, in a footnote at the end of the decision, the panel declines to look at the merits on the th of the threshold challenge to the appointment of Special Counsel Smith. All right, so I saw some people saying, no, no, no. Um, some other law experts. There was one guy, I don't remember if he was George Washington Law or, or University of Texas or... He was some university law professor, and he said, no, 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 Turley has this wrong, like as far as how many days it would take and how much time Trump has. Turley has this wrong. And I'm aware that the court said that um, Trump only has so many days to appeal. Not really worried about it. He'll appeal. He's already said he would appeal. It doesn't really matter if Turley's right on the actual numbers of how many days it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of days. This thing isn't getting back up to speed anytime soon. 
Charlie came back and added the DC court order adds a wrinkle on scheduling by saying that Trump only has until Monday, February 12th to file with the Supreme court. The standard rules allow Trump 90 days. If he does not, the mandate returns to the district court, which can restart trial proceedings. Guys, I kind of wonder if the first thing Trump's going to do is challenge this. He, I wonder if he'll, I wonder if he can or and will appeal that he only has until Monday to file with the Supreme Court. If the standard rules are that he has 90 days, I could totally picture Trump's attorneys. The first thing they're going to do is file a motion saying they intend to file with the Supreme Court and appeal to the Supreme Court. But the standard allows for 90 days and they want 90 days. Which will add more delay. However, if the judge restarts pre-trial proceedings, it could again be interrupted by an appeal. That includes a possible emergency motion to the court to stay proceedings that would go to Chief Justice Roberts and he would likely send it to the full court. If a stay is issued, we would be back to the possible filing of an en banc decision and then a later petition to the Supreme Court and months of delay in filings alone. Keep in mind, there is still much to be done on the district court level. Whenever the court restarts trial proceedings, it could take weeks, if not months. If everything breaks for Smith on the calendar, he could still secure a pre-election trial, but he is facing, facing diminishing odds. So if everything goes in Smith's favor, we're still talking about a trial that won't start until sometime this summer. At best. At best. Which I don't think it's going to happen. Um, Technofog. He didn't post this on Twitter, or at least he hadn't as of last night, but he did post it on Telegram. Um, court of Appeal, he says the Court of Appeals denied this. This will be headed to the Supreme Court. The D.C. case will not go to trial before the election. That is Technofog's prediction. It's not going to happen before the election. He also wrote, it's hard to predict such things, but we're going to go for it. We find it more likely than not that the Supreme Court does not rule on the immunity issue before the 2024 election. This will allow the court to defer making a ruling on a novel question of first impression, that be presidential immunity from criminal prosecution, that will have significant consequences. Should Trump be elected, he will have the power to pardon himself. Should he lose the election, the court can make its ruling after that time. The court isn't in a rush to decide this issue, and such a strategy will keep it from making an election-altering decision. The court is sensitive to its public perception and generally doesn't want to insert itself into electoral matters. This is true. This is very true, regardless of this case or any other. Another former prosecutor and defense attorney, Leslie McAdoo-Gordon, said that um, we have probably already passed the point. There's a couple spelling errors here. We have, all, we have probably already passed the point at which any case in the SCOTUS on the immunity issue would be argued next term. Next term starts in October. unless the court specially sets an earlier schedule. The court's next term starts next October. The next time we're going to get a big 
uh, trove of decisions from the court is going to be in June, right? So it's highly, highly unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to take this case up and decide it before the election. And it's and and that's just that's just based on the schedule, just on the schedule that the Supreme Court goes by. Um, it's highly unlikely they would have to do something extraordinarily unusual to take this case on, hear it, argue it, and then issue an opinion before the election, which they wouldn't want to do. Technofog is right that the court doesn't want to insert itself into the election. And they, it would be much better for the court, from their perspective, to let the election play out, consider this case over a long period of time, especially since it's so incredibly consequential and unprecedented, and issue a decision later on down the road. Now, of course, one of the most interesting things about all of this is that quote right there. That any executive immunity that may have protected Trump while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. So is that true for every former president? Trump maintains that presidents must have presidential immunity for their official acts. Otherwise, they will be prosecuted by the opposing party over and over again, and eventually we'll have presidents who are too afraid to do anything. And he's right. And the founding fathers considered this. The founding fathers argued about this um, a lot when they were writing the Constitution, and they were talking about uh, impeachment process and presidential immunity. And they decided that the president must have immunity because he must have the ability and the confidence to act in the moment and make decisions in the moment without having to consider his political opponents persecuting for him and prosecuting him for those decisions after he is no longer president. That's why we have the immunity in the first place. If the president acts in such a way that is deemed criminal that is deemed obscenely wrong there's a process for dealing with that while he's in office and it's called impeachment and trump has gone through that process twice and survives both times so we're in my in my opinion and this has been my opinion for a long time this case and all of almost all of Trump's legal cases are about setting new precedents. I think he wants these cases as controversial as that is and as much protesting as he does. I think it's kayfabe. I think Trump wants these cases. He wants things such as presidential immunity examined. I think he wants all sorts of things reexamined by courts and new precedents set 
because it sets us up for a better America down the road. And he's willing to take all of those slings and arrows and all of those stones and spend all of this money in order to endure the damage and fight that battle so that he sets America up to be better off than it has been. Sets us up to be better off than we have been. And the issue of presidential immunity is one of those things that he is fighting a battle with. And he's putting himself in a bad position in order to get it to SCOTUS so that SCOTUS can decide where presidential immunity applies and where it doesn't. Where and when. And I've said for about a month now that I think what SCOTUS ends up doing is affirming Trump's presidential immunity, affirming presidential immunity for all presidents, but narrowing down its use case, narrowing down what the official acts are and providing, I think, and I, I go back to the Clinton pardon gate thing. I think it would be in the country's best interest if presidents had immunity for official acts, but there was some means by which we could prosecute them for selling pardons. Pardons are an official act in and of themselves but we know that presidents sell them. And we know that presidents will, they'll sell other official acts, right? So there needs to be some way that we can hold presidents to account for what they do as an official act when that official act, while it has protection, the core of what they're doing is illegal. The function is official act and should have immunity, but their impetus for doing it is, is criminal. And I think that's what, I think that's what Trump is trying to get done. I think it's really about this official act. And I just think that I, I, I don't see any way at all that SCOTUS won't uphold presidential immunity. I just think they're going to box they're going to they're going to give it a bold outline. And it could be one where Trump is still prosecuted. It doesn't mean that it's going to be gone and Trump is uh the whole case is thrown out. I'm not sure that'll happen. I think the net effects of it will be um that presidential immunity is hedged in. I could be wrong, but that's where, I, that's where I think it's headed. And so we're at a place where this case, even, with the, even though the Court of Appeals has um, given their order, this thing isn't started back up again. It's going to be appealed, and it's going to be more delays, and that's good for Trump because these cases are his, are his campaign. Um, and so we, I don't know how many, how much more we're going to be in the DC, DC case over the next six months, uh, or so leading up to November. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's not going to, we're not going to forget about it, but, um, the appeals process is going to be pretty slow. And I think Trump's team is going to work to delay it as much as possible. I'm sure they have a plan to delay it as much as possible 
because they don't want this case to play out before the election. I don't think. The only way I could see them wanting it to play out and have a trial before the November election is if they have a plan to and are are confident that they are going to introduce some sort of evidence in this case that not only blows it up, but exposes a whole bunch of other swamp creatures. That's the only way I see them actually trying to get this. That's the only way I see Trump's team actually trying to get this case to go to trial before November is if there's some Trump card they plan to play at trial. And while we can get our, our hopes up that they have that, and we have, we've had some inklings of that. We've had some indicators um, that they want to do that. I'm not convinced that I, they haven't gotten all the discovery they want. And I'm not, I'm not sure. So I think, um, I think it's more likely, I think it's far more likely the case won't, won't be, it won't go to trial before the, the election. All right. I got some rants. So let me catch up on these rants over here. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Um, grab them. I have a thing that tracks rants and I keep on forgetting that I have to turn it on before they come in. Now I've got it turned on. All right. Uh, all y'all thinking that I was sleeping in today. Ha. I was up. I was up before seven. Okay. Music and fiction was first, I believe says so with the DC cases are now going to, to the Supreme court due to the immunity issue. And with Georgia imploding as we speak, it sure is. Seems like the Doc's case is the only hope left for the deep state. And that hope is fading. I agree. 100%. R.L. Skeeter, thank you for the 10 bucks. I will pull a Kevin McCarthy and start a challenge. <laughs> okay. See, where's the next one? Woohoo, attorney's fees. <laughs> I know it's exciting, isn't it? I know y'all love those filings. Uh, Jason again. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. He says, attempting to slap the boss in chains while he assumes the presidency would make my lifetime. I may have to learn to write books. <laughs> it is fun to think about, like, Trump Trump is doing a great job using these cases. They make him don't they make him look more attractive? Obviously, they make him look more attractive to the electorate. It doesn't matter how much the left tries to make him seem like a crooked criminal mobster guy, wanted dead or alive type scenario, like it just makes him cool. Like they keep on trying to bring up these in, these indictments and charges against him. And only people who already have TDS think that it hurts him. Everybody else is like, that's right. The deep state's after him. He's our guy. It just makes him cool and endearing to us. Like <laughs> Jason again. Thank you, Jason. 
says, so is it the judicial or legislative branch that has been infiltrated more? Legislative. I would say. Legislative. Yep. Steve Tans, thank you very much. Always clear and steady. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. God is with us over on Foxhole. Thank you for the cookie. Says it's spinning here on Foxhole a bit. It's okay now. Every once in a while, I've noticed that Foxhole kind of hiccups some. Um, it does it for me quite a bit, actually. And I kind of wonder, I'm wondering if it has to do with Brave Browser. Um, if there's something about Brave where it messes up the player, because I find that on Foxhole, it'll work for a, this isn't just my show, it's other shows. It'll work for a time and then, and then suddenly quit. And I kind of, I think it has to do with me and my browser more so than it has to do with Foxhole. Okay. Let's see, 1030. All right, Doc's case. We got some stuff going on over here. I'm going to try and go through it before I run out of time. I got, got about one hour, 10 minutes. I will say that last comment on the uh, DC case. I'm glad at how most of MAGA in the community I'm in and around received that news. Um, I didn't see a lot of people get reeing and being super upset about it, you know. Um, I think everybody's expected it. Everybody knows it's going to SCOTUS and there's nothing to re about. Um, Trump has been emphasizing for months and months that presidents have to have presidential immunity. And he, he's, he's right. And I just don't see any way that SCOTUS completely removes presidential immunity. I just, I just don't. Okay. Doc's case now takes center stage. Scheduling order. So we've been talking about SIPA 4 hearings for a long time now. There's this battle playing out over SIPA 4. SIPA Section 4 has to do with classified discovery that a defendant may be entitled to, but that for whatever reason, the DOJ says no, they shouldn't have access to. Um, and they they make those cases ex parte. That means just between them and the judge. They go to them and say, look, the defendant is trying to get this classified information. It's part of discovery. We want to redact or delete these portions of it for these reasons. And if you take it out of this case, take it out of Trump's, it being about Trump, just imagine a different case, such as a drug case, a narcotics case, okay? So say there's some classified information that has to do with um, that investigation, such as informants or surveillance or things like that. And the prosecution is of this narcotics um, dealer or runner organization. 
DOJ might go to the judge under a SIPA 4 setting and say, look, we want to redact or delete these portions of the classified discovery from the defendant because we don't want him finding out about our, our assets that are in place. And we don't want him finding out about how we surveil their drug trafficking network. We want to protect that. So that's how I've seen this stuff argued before. I believe that's like a really simple scenario. That's pretty easy to understand why someone would bring up a sip of four. And Jack Smith is trying to use sip of four in this instance to prevent Trump and his team from having certain classified discovery in the case. They've been arguing back and forth about it. Trump said it's ridiculous. And as president, he had the ultimate classification authority and was privy to everything. And is probably already knows. He probably already knows all this stuff that Jack Smith is trying to get deleted. And his attorneys have clearances. So why can't his attorney see this stuff? So Judge Cannon has come out with an order and she says on February 12th and 13th, 2024, the court will conduct sealed ex parte hearings. That's between them and the judge pursuant to section four of the classified information procedures act. These proceedings will be held in a facility suitable for discussion of the classified information contained within the party's section four submissions. The anticipated schedule for the section four hearing is are set below Monday, February 12th, 9 30 AM to 2 PM. The court will hear arguments from defense counsel. So Trump's team outside of the presence of the special counsel. So just judge Chukin, I mean, judge cannon talking with Trump's team consistent with the protective orders entered on September 13th. Defendants Nada and Dale Oliveira may not be present. Defense counsel shall be prepared to discuss their defense theories in case in detail or in detail in this case. So she wants to hear about their defense theories. That's what they have to do. They have to go to her and say, look, these are the defenses we plan on presenting or that we are considering presenting for Trump. That's why we need this classified information and how any classified information might be relevant or helpful to the defense. Defense counsel should shall also be prepared to discuss defendants' motions for access to SIPA 4 filings and defendants' challenges to the special counsel's, counsel's SIPA 4 motions. Then, so that's going to be in the morning, 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., I guess the morning through lunch. Then she's going to give uh, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. The court will hear from the special counsel outside of the defendant's presence. So that's two hours to the special counsel. The special counsel shall be prepared to discuss its SIPA for motions and all follow-up items from the sealed ex parte hearing held on January 31st. Tuesday, February 13th, as previously ordered, the party shall reserve February 13th for further proceedings on their section four submissions as necessary. As a separate matter, consistent with the protective orders entered in this case, defendants Nada and De Oliveira shall file a public notice of filing on February 7th, reflecting the classified submissions referenced in their challenge to Smith's SIPA four motions. Done and ordered this day, the 5th of February. Eileen Cannon. So, SIPA four hearings are ahead of us. Hopefully. Hopefully Trump's team prevails. I better refill this coffee cup. 
Hopefully Trump's team prevails and they get access to this stuff. And hopefully Judge Cannon tells Jack Smith, yeah, some of this stuff you're trying to uh, redact and delete, you can't do that. I do not agree. Now, there's more. Government's opposition to the press coalition's motion to intervene and unseal. So the press is also trying to get access to some of these filings. <laughs> Thanks for becoming a monthly supporter. It's Tony, man. Thank you very much. Jason, again, Jason, you are in a generous mood this morning. Thank you, sir. He says they should live stream the final arguments from the Batcave. I support that. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Okay. This is... Press Coalition is trying to get access to the unsealing and uh, removal of redactions on certain filings. Here we have, here we have Jack Smith responding to those motions and um, in opposition, of course. Press Coalition moves to intervene in order to participate in litigation of proposed redactions to unsealing of certain records that are currently covered by the court's protective order. The relief they seek is an assurance that the court conduct an independent review of any proposed redactions and withholdings to ensure that the government has met its burden of showing that its proposed redactions are narrowly tailored to serve the government's legitimate interest in the integrity of the ongoing case and are the least onerous alternative to sealing the records entirely. As the government has made clear in response to the defendant's motion to disclose discovery material, it fully supports full transparency. Yeah, allegedly. You say that, but I'm not sure you do. Although the press coalition states that it has standing to move for intervention, it neither addresses nor establishes the elements of intervention. Both are required. Intervention as a right requires, one, an unconditional right to intervene by federal statute, two, an interest relating to the property or transaction that is subject of the action and is so situated that disposing of the action may, as a practical matter, impair or impede the movement's ability to protect its interest. As an initial matter, the government is unaware of any statute providing the press coalition an unconditional right to intervene, and the, pros, the press coalition has identified none. Accordingly, that subsection is not applicable. Or as to non-statutory intervention as a right under subsection 24A2, the rule creates a four-part test. Timeliness, sufficient interest, impairment of that interest, absent intervention, and inadequate representation by parties. The movement bears the burden, so the press has the burden of, meet, of proving that they meet those things. Here, the press coalition fails to establish at least the third and fourth elements, so that would be impairment of that interest, absent intervention, and inadequate representation by parties. The press coalition's stated objective is intervening in intervening is to ensure that the court conducts an independent review of the government's proposed redactions and holdings. But the government's proposed redactions and justifications, as well as the defendant's positions, are already before the court. Intervention for the sole purpose of encouraging the court to follow the law cannot constitute grounds to intervene, as the press coalition's interest is already protected by the court's pending independent review. 
Moreover, the party's competing submissions to the court, coupled with the court's independent review, provide adequate representation to the press coalition's stated interest on the issue of unsealing. That is especially true because the parties have access to the sealed information and have made targeted arguments to the court based on the facts of this particular dispute. The press coalition cannot similarly contribute to the adjudication of the factual issues. Nor is permissive intervention warranted. Permissive intervention requires either one, a conditional right to intervene granted by a federal statute, or two, a claim or defense that shares with the main action a common question of law or fact. Again, the press coalition identifies no statutory right to intervene, conditional or otherwise, and its interest has no commonality with the main actor in this criminal case. Rather, the press coalition's interest is ancillary to the main proceedings. It seeks transparency into proceedings and access to information. But that interest fails to satisfy the standard for permissive intervention, and in any event, such intervention is unnecessary because the court is already poised to determine, based on submissions from the parties and prevailing law, what information should remain sealed. That's a pretty good point. There are, there's already a pending back and forth over the unsealing of these materials. Trump's team is already trying to get them unsealed. And the court is already reviewing them. The press is coming in and trying to intervene in it. And they're asking for the same thing as Trump. But remember in Trump's filing, Trump's, this is a weird thing where both Trump and Jack Smith oppose what the media is asking for. Both of them do. Even though in the end, they want the same uh, thing. They want the same relief as it's called, which is the unsealing of these records so that everybody can see that full transparency. But it's funny because they're both, both Jack Smith and Trump are opposing the press Jack Smith is saying they don't meet the standard of this. This is improper. Uh, they don't have standing, whatever. They're, they're, they, they, they can't get in. They, this is incorrect. Their intervention is incorrect. Their motion is inter incorrect. And they don't meet the requirements to bring such a motion. Trump's team is opposing it because they're saying they're making the wrong argument. And that they're putting the onerous on the court when the onerous should be on Jack Smith, who sealed them in the first place. And so Trump's team opposes the press's motion because they, according to, it's different from the, the argument Trump's team is making, and they, they don't like it. They're saying they, made, they brought the wrong, wrong argument. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, the press coalition argues in the alternative that its brief be accepted as an amicus curiae, filing in support of neither party and in favor of unsealing. No rules, no rule governs the filing of amicus briefs in district court, but they should be accepted only when they would be helpful to the court. The government defers to the court as to whether such an amicus filing would assist the court. However, the press coalition submission merely seeks to ensure that the court engages in an independent evaluation of the information at issue, and the court is already engaged in that process. So, like, this filing is superfluous. Uh, and it's improper for the reasons 
uh, for these reasons, the court should deny the press coalition's motion to intervene, and the government defers to the court as to whether it wishes to permit the filing of the press coalition's brief as amicus curiae. It's just interesting to me that this battle is playing out. Here's one instance where both Trump and Jack Smith agree, and that is that the press coalition should be denied. <laughs> which is it's funny which i think means judge jukin's gonna deny it because both parties are like nah don't 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 grant what these guys want okay um this is the main one let me see what this other one was okay let me just cover this real quick this is uh trump Trump's team, they want uh, pretrial motion deadlines moved. Um, defendants respectfully request permission to file suppression motions and motions relating to evidence sought in the pending motions to compel within one month of the court's resolution of the pending motions. The special counsel's office opposes this motion and requests an opportunity to respond. Pursuant to the court scheduling order, the deadline for pretrial motions is February 22nd. In connection with that deadline, the court's scheduling order states, to the extent there is overlap between anticipated pretrial motions and motions in limine, not covered in the initial set of deadlines, the filing party should so advise the court prior to the pretrial motion deadline. Defendants currently plan to file on February 22nd, at minimum, a series of motions dismissing the superseding indictment and certain of the charges herein. I thought so. I thought that Trump had not filed a motion to dismiss in this case. Specifically, although the defense is still evaluating potential motions, we expect to file motions on February 22nd related to presidential immunity, the Presidential Records Act, President Trump's security clearances, the vagueness doctrine, impermissible pre-indictment delay, and selective and vindictive prosecution. That's a lot of filings. So that's one, two... Three, four, five, six. Assuming they're all independent filings. As suggested in the defendant's motion to compel, the defense is, the defense is considering additional motions with respect to which we are entitled to further discovery, including motions to suppress evidence and or dismiss the superseding indictment based on prosecutorial misconduct, due process violations, unlawful disregard of President Trump's attorney-client privilege, the Mar-a-Lago raid and the searches of defendants' electronic devices. Boy, this is going to be fun. For example, evidence sought in the motions to compel may support additional motions to suppress and is relevant to the application of the suppression remedy and good faith doctrine in connection with any suppression motions. The, def the defense should be permitted to make decisions regarding these motions and potentially others based on a complete record. In addition to the pending motions to compel, on January 26, 2024, the special counsel's office produced approximately 2,100 pages of previously sealed and or ex parte litigation filings and other discovery relating to President Trump's anticipated privilege-related motion. Despite the fact that these materials are plainly subject to Rule 16A1E, and although the office has produced numerous other filings and discovery, including defense filings in this case, the office failed to produce these materials until President Trump specifically requested them. The defendant's review of the recently produced discovery and the resolution of the pending motions to compel 
as well as the pending SIPA4 motion, will impact our analysis of whether or not, of whether and how to pursue some defense motions. Accordingly, the defendants respectfully request that the court modify the schedule order to permit the filing of suppression motions and motions relating to evidence sought in the pending motions to compel within one month of the court's resolution of pending motions. Makes sense to me, but of course, that's the most exciting part of this is President Trump's team is about to make a bunch of huge filings in this case. And what do you think is going to happen, guys? He's going to file for presidential immunity. What if Judge Cannon denies him and then he appeals that? Or what if Judge Cannon affirms his presidential immunity and then that gets brought into the DC case and they got, you got one judge in Florida saying he has presidential immunity and then the other judge in DC saying he doesn't. What a time to be alive. This is fun. Okay, here's the here's the uh the main dish over here. Uh before I do before I grab that, I think another rant came in. Steve Tans, thank you again. Says if Kushner is Robin, Scavino is Alfred. 100%. 100%. DM Wilson, thank you. They say they agree with uh, Jason of GTA, but only if it occurs while the FBI conducts its overlooked search. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so final arguments in the Batcave while the FBI searches the Batcave. <laughs> it's Tony, man. Thank you very much. Um, says... BB and I are responsible for me having to watch the Batman trilogy and can say it was like watching a different movie. Dude, it is, isn't it? Yes. Everybody should rewatch the Batman trilogy with the, a mindset of Trump being Batman. It changes, changes the whole thing. Okay. Let's see, I got some time. Got some time. All right. Order granting in part Trump's motion for temporary leave to file redacted motions. Okay. This cause comes before the court. The court has reviewed the motion. This is the motion to compel discovery. The special counsel's response proposed redactions and defendants reply. The unredacted versions of the filings and associated submission filed under seal and the full record, including the press coalition and the special counsel's opposition. So all of these filings right here, all of these. Upon examination of the foregoing and following an independent review of the proposed redactions against the backdrop of the First Amendment's qualified right of access to criminal defendants, Trump's motion is granted in part as indicated below. Boom. Trump wins. Background. On 16th of January, 2024, the defendants, that'd be Trump, 
filed multiple motions to compel discovery in consolidated form. Pursuant to Rule 16 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Brady v. Maryland, Giglio v. United States. Defendants attached various exhibits in support of their motions, some of which consist of documents or portions of documents produced by the special counsel in discovery in this case and other materials obtained by defendants pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act. Consistent with the protective order entered on June 19, 2023, defendants filed other motions to compel in partially redacted form on the public docket and then contemporaneously moved for leave to file substantially unredacted versions of their motions to compel, with limited exceptions. Defendants note that public and court filings are matters of public record, as indicated in the local rules, and argue that the special counsel has not carried its burden to seal presumptively public records filed on the court docket, with the exception of limited redactions consistent with privacy protections in Rule 49.1 of the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure and the court's administrative procedures. The special counsel opposes unsealing the motions to compel to the extent that the information therein, quote, A, reveals the identity of any potential government witness, B, reveals personal identifying information for any potential government witness, or C, constitutes Jinx Act material for any potential government witness. Jinx Act material is like internal FBI communications. The special counsel also identifies, quote, certain additional discrete sensitive information that he argues should be redacted or sealed, and he proposes redactions for the motions and attached exhibits. Following the party submissions, the press coalition filed a motion to intervene and unseal the defendant's motions to compel discovery and the exhibits thereto. The press coalition argues that defendant's motion to compel in unclassified form are presumptively public records, uh, court records, as to which the special counsel carries a heavy burden to restrict from public view. The press coalition requests that the court conduct an independent review of the special counsel's proposed redactions to ensure that any redactions are rooted in a compelling government request, are narrowly tailored, and are supported by the record. In the alternative, the press coalition requests that its brief be accepted as an amicus curiae filing in support of neither party and in favor of unsealing. The special counsel opposes the press coalition's effort to intervene in this litigation over proposed redactions. Legal standards. The press and the public enjoy a qualified First Amendment right of access to criminal trial proceedings. United States versus Ochoa Vasquez, 2005. Although the, court, the contours of that right as applied to court records in criminal cases remain a developing area of the law, several courts, with limited exceptions not relevant here, have applied the First Amendment right to judicial documents and records, including documents filed in a court docket during the pretrial phase of a criminal proceeding. skipping some of this. In this case, neither party argues that the First Amendment does not apply to a defendant's motion to compel or the materials attached thereto. In light of these First Amendment principles, a party seeking to seal or redact court filings, including pretrial motions, carries a heavy burden. The party requesting closure must demonstrate that such action is necessitated by a compelling governmental interest and is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. Further, in ordering that documents be sealed from public view, 
a district court must set forth the specific legal and factual basis for such an order. The strong presumption of openness is reflected in this district's local rules. Any party seeking to see judicial, seal judicial records thus must, quote, set forth the factual and legal basis for departing from the policy that court filings be public. The court has emphasized these principles to the parties throughout this case. That is true. I've mentioned to you guys before how Judge Cannon has said she will err on the side of transparency and public disclosure, and she has she has lived up to that. At every opportunity where she could make something public, it seems like she has, more or less. Discussion. Following an independent review of the motion and the full record, the court determines, with limited exceptions as detailed below, that the special counsel has not set forth a sufficient factual or legal basis warranting deviation from the strong presumption in favor of public access to the records at issue. Most of the special counsel's proposed redactions concern sealing the identity of potential government witnesses and their statements as referenced in defendants' motions and in certain attachments. In support of that request, the special counsel re refers in general terms to witness safety and intimidation, citing to the Jinx Act. Although substantiated witness safety and intimidation concerns can form a valid basis for overriding the strong presumption in favor of public access, the special counsel's sparse and undifferentiated response fails to provide the court with the necessary factual basis to justify sealing. Where's the next part? Then it says, see Ochoa Vasquez. Nor is such a factual basis provided in the special counsel's related sealed filing in support of its request. So y'all remember we read the opposition the other day and it really just sounded like Jack Smith was re-arguing against um, a motion to dismiss on vindictive prosecution, right? Like the majority of Jack Smith's filing against Trump's motion to compel discovery was just saying, it was like 90% of it or 80% of it was Trump's just trying to make an argument of vindictive prosecution here. And he really didn't challenge the specifics of the motion to compel. The only time he did was when it came to, you know, he's got to protect witnesses. The special counsel also alludes, again in general terms, to the concern that the public disclosure of witness identities or their statements in advance of trial also risk infecting the testimony of other witnesses or unnecessarily influencing the jury pool. Even accepting those rationales for sealing, the special counsel's submission offers nothing in the form of concrete factual support for those rationales or otherwise identifies any supporting evidence in the record to justify granting the special counsel's broad and unspecified request on those bases. This leaves four categories for resolution in the special counsel's seal request. Personal identifying information for potential government witnesses such as date of birth, email addresses, telephone numbers, references to signals intelligence subcompartments, references to an FBI code name of a separate investigation, and, quote, uncharged conduct as to one or more individuals. The court takes these issues in turn, 
following a careful review of the subject attachments in light of the special counsel's exhibit-by-exhibit exhibit seal redaction request. First, as to, a pers as to personal identifying information, so dates of birth, social security numbers, email, uh, phone numbers, the court agrees with the special counsel and defendants that sealing of this information is narrowly tailored and consistent with the privacy protections rooted in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure 49.1 and this district's administrative procedures. Defendants are therefore directed to comb the materials carefully and redact the email addresses, phone numbers, date of birth, social security numbers, and any home addresses. Second, the court determines at this stage that the special counsel's national security concerns are sufficient and specific to warrant sealing of the signals intelligence subcompartments as redacted in the superseding indictment. So this is what Jack Smith is getting. Uh, privacy stuff remaining sealed. Signals intelligence remaining sealed. Third, with respect to the special counsel's desire to shield the FBI code name of a separate investigation, neither the special counsel's publicly filed response nor the accompanying sealed filing identifies the information it seeks to redact. Although protection of a continuing law enforcement action can constitute a compelling government interest, the special counsel fails to identify the information at issue, provide any explanation about the nature of the investigation, or explain how disclosure of the code name would prejudice or jeopardize the integrity of the separate investigation, assuming it remains ongoing. The special counsel's request on this point is accordingly denied. Sweet. And fourth, turning to the exhibit discussing uncharged conduct as to one or more individuals, defendants do not present any opposition to the public filing of that information and the special counsel has failed to articulate any specific factual or legal basis for the redaction request. And an insufficient basis has been provided to seal this information. So, for the foregoing reasons, it is hereby argued or ordered and adjudged as follows. One, defendant's motion is granted in part. The press coalition's motion to intervene is denied as moot. It doesn't matter. Three, on or before February 9th, 2024. What is today? Today's the seventh. Defendant shall file under seal a proposed public version consistent with the order for the court. Upon finding that the redactions are consistent with this order and no greater than necessary, the court will direct the clerk to unseal that filing. Four, the parties are reminded of the strong presumption of public access in criminal proceedings and are directed as follows. Notwithstanding the conventional filing procedure outlined in Local Rule 5.4c, there shall be no filing under seal of any unclassified material in this case. Mm. Unless the party seeking to make a filing under full or partial seal first has sought and obtained permission from the court. Oh, man, through a motion for leave to file under seal. The motion for leave shall be filed publicly except in clear and supported cases of risk to personal safety or national security. Oh, so Judge Cannon is shutting Jack Smith down on that technique. She's saying no more filing public stuff under seal. 
unless you have permission from me first. From now on, if it's public information, if it's unclassified material, you file it publicly on this docket. The motion for leave shall specify the particularized basis for sealing the proposed unclassified material, including any relevant provisions of protective orders filed in this case, the proposed duration of the seal request, and reasons why means other than sealing are unavailable or unsatisfactory. The party seeking authorization to seal materials shall not file or otherwise attach the subject material until the court has ruled on the motion for leave. Notice how she's putting this in bold? She's shutting down Jack Smith's um, technique of filing unclassified stuff under seal and then this battle playing out later for it to be unsealed. <coughs> Jack Smith keeps on trying to have everything hidden. And Judge Cannon is like, nah, I'm not doing this anymore, dude. Any impending deadline connected to the seal request shall be denoted in the motion for leave and any motion for leave to file unclassified records under seal as part of a court filing shall be made following conferral and sufficiently in advance of the related filing deadline to permit adequate court consideration. So she's also saying, you're not going to rush me. You're going to ask for my permission to do such a thing, and you're going to give me plenty of time to decide whether or not I'm going to allow it. You're not going to rush me, Jack Smith, and you're not going to play games on my docket. Done and ordered, 6th day of February, Judge Eileen Cannon. Damn, she's good. She is good. So that means that Friday, Friday, we're going to get, um, well, by Friday, by Friday, Trump's team has to file under seal proposed public version of um, these materials with re proposed redactions and such, such and such. And then the court will review it to make sure it's consistent with this order. And then it will be unsealed by the clerk. So we'll get new information. It looks like we're going to learn the name of that FBI investigation and uh, who knows what else. So Trump, Trump won here. He won on this this part. All right, let's see. Um, Shelly of Texas, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let me check my email. I have a few minutes. I have several minutes. Uh, let me check my email to see if there's anything I'm missing. Anything new has come through from one of my... One of the cases I'm tracking. Okay. Good stuff from I, from Judge Cannon. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. 
Sorry for the dead air, but I'm looking for something. Right here. Let me give you guys a heads up on something I'm working on. And then right here. Okay. So on the Menendez case, this is this will actually just a moment. This will let me log into Pacer because that'll make it easier to see. Uh, what I want to point out here. Oh, good morning, Wild Boar. Yeah, Wild Boar, I saw um I saw sometime recently you you said something about back there you just said it again, background music. You just said it. Um so we've before you were watching this show, we've had that discussion about background music before and whether or not to play it and pretty firmly decided against it. Uh, one, because it annoys me and two, uh, we've tried it before and a lot of people complain about it. Um, so yeah, we've already had, we've already had this discussion a long time ago within the first hundred episodes um, about whether or not background music should be played. And most people were like, yeah, don't play background music. Now, now during this time right here, if I'm just like chilling and talking, then I mean, light background music is okay. But, um, you know, when I'm, I, see, I'll tell you, this is, I'll tell you this. Let me say, this is where we ended up in the discussion on it. Um, so people have been programmed. Actually, I sh it's programming, but it's really conditioning. Probably is more accurate. So people have been conditioned to where dead air bothers them. And people have been conditioned to where uh, they expect whoever's on TV or the radio to be, to be speaking constantly, whether, regardless of whether they're saying anything worth hearing. It's just how we've been conditioned um, over decades and decades. And that's not how normal conversation happens. <laughs> normal conversation and discussion and normal human um, interaction contains pauses, contains gaps. Uh, that's, it's 100% it's normal, but for some reason, people have been conditioned to where they, with they, if they're watching TV or they're listening to music, or they're listening to radio or podcast, there has to be constant noise, constant talking, constant uh, something. And we've lost, some, along the way, we've lost regard and consideration for how meaningful a pause can be. And so I'm not about to change the entire podcast industry just myself by allowing pauses or whatever. Uh, but we decided, we decided a long go, long time ago on this show, um, <laughs> mermaid miss mermaid calling you a newbie, uh, that actually we kind of like them. And I used to leave greater pauses because I was so nervous. I would overthink everything I said on this show and I would need, I would need these gaps because I was so, I had so much anxiety about speaking on the mic. Um, and I've gotten better about it. 
but it's okay to have pauses and silence. It's okay. So anyway, now I've caught you up on it. I've caught you up on it. Uh, by the way, my favorite music is music that's dynamic, and that in- that includes pauses, rest, all that kind of stuff. That's if you listen to popular radio now, you'll notice that there are no pauses in music anymore. Mainstream stuff, anyway. There's no and there's no volume dynamics. It's it's terrible. And TV's the same way, just constant speaking. Okay, what I wanted to show you on, uh, I want to show you guys on the Menendez docket. Look at this. Sealed, 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 sealed. Four more sealed. Four more. Another one. Five more. So on the Menendez docket, Oh yeah, I gotta I gotta share screen. <laughs> Thanks, Cinco. <laughs> I gotta show you guys this. Sorry. Uh I forgot. So um on the Menendez docket, there's all of these um there's all of these sealed documents that are showing up. And now some of them I know what they are. Um where it's like sealed motions for uh proposed redactions of documents and the press is coming in here wanting access to various filings, but some of them, I'm not exactly sure what they are. And I'm not, I'm not sure that the U S attorneys are done adding charges here. I'm not, I'm really not. I think, I think there's more, there's more going on here. Like, uh, okay, let me, let me sh- search this. Let me, I'll show you how many, let's get a count. 22. There are 22 sealed filings in this case. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I was waiting to see if Wild Boar reacted to that pause. 22 sealed filings in this case. I wonder what they all are. I know that some of them are them fighting against the press. And the judge has ordered them to make their filings as to why certain things should be sealed. Um, and make, make those under seal, but there's, um, I don't know. I just got this feeling. I just got this feeling like we're about to learn that there's more people being indicted. There's going to be a third superseding indictment here and there's going to be, it's going to have more people. Maybe there's another country that Bob Menendez is, uh, was taking bribes from, from, I think, I still think that we're going to see Nadine Menendez flip. But anyway, just something I've noticed on this docket. There's a lot of stuff playing out in secret. All right, now for something else. So 
earlier um, last week, Joshua Adam Schulte was sentenced for um, hacking the CIA, stealing the CIA's tools, hacking Vault 7 and Vault 8, and providing those materials to um, WikiLeaks. Hold on just a moment. I'll find my uh, my post about it. I should have grabbed this. All right, and you guys have heard me say a couple times recently, um, you've heard me express an unpopular opinion about Assange and WikiLeaks, which is uh, I'm not a big fan. I am not a fan. So let me grab these headlines. This, yes. Here we go. Here we go. So, and I'm, I'm remembering this time, I'm going to show you my screen. I remember now. Former CIA officer Joshua Adam Schulte sentenced to 40 years in prison for espionage and child pornography crimes. United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General for National Security, James Smith, Assistant Director in Charge, New York Field Office of the FBI, today announced Joshua Adam Schulte was sentenced to 40 years in prison by the U.S. District Judge Jesse M. Furman for crimes of espionage, computer hacking, contempt of court, making false statements to the FBI, and child pornography. Schulte's theft is the largest data breach in the history of the CIA, and his transmission of that stolen information to WikiLeaks is one of the largest unauthorized disclosures of classified information in the history of the U.S. Today's sentencing followed Schulte's convictions at trial that concluded on March 9, 2020, July 13, 2022, and September 13, 2023. Assistant Attorney General Matthew G. Olson said, quote, Mr. Schulte severely harmed U.S. national security and directly risked the lives of CIA personnel persisting in his efforts even after his arrest. As today's sentence reaffirms, the Department of Justice is committed to investigating, prosecuting, and holding accountable those who would violate their constitutional oath and betray the trust of the American people they pledge to protect. FBI Assistant Director in Charge James Smith said, Joshua Schulte was rightly punished not only for his betrayal of the country, but for his substantial possession of horrific child pornographic material. The severity of his actions is evident, and the sentence imposed reflects the magnitude of the disturbing and harmful threat posed by his criminal conduct. The FBI will not yield in our efforts to bring to justice anyone who endangers innocent children or threatens our national security. Now, according to court documents and evidence at trial, these are no longer just allegations. These are proven at trial. From 2012 to 2016, Schulte was employed as a software developer in the Center for Cyber Intelligence, CCI, which conducts offensive cyber operations. 
cyber espionage relating to terrorist organizations and foreign governments. Schulte and other CCI developers worked on tools that were used in, among other things, human-enabled operations, cyber operations that involved a person with access to the computer network being targeted by the cyber tool. In addition to being a developer, Schulte was also temporarily one of the administrators of one of the servers and suite of development programs used to build cyber tools. In March 2016, Schulte was moved within the branches of CCI as a result of a personnel dispute between Schulte and another developer. Following that transfer in April 2016, Schulte abused his administrator powers to grant himself administrator privileges over a pr development project from which he had been removed as a result of the branch change. Schulte's abuse of administrator privileges was detected, and CCI leadership directed that administrator privileges would immediately be transferred from developers, including Schulte, to another division. Schulte was also given a warning about self-granting administrator privileges that had previously been revoked. Schulte had, however, secretly opened an administrator session on one of the servers before his privileges were removed. On April 20, 2016, after other developers had left the CCI office, Schulte used his secret server administrator session to execute a series of cyber maneuvers on the CIA network to restore his revoked privileges, break into backups, steal copies of the entire CCI tool development archive, the stolen CIA files, quote unquote, revert the network back to its prior state and delete hundreds of log files in an attempt to cover his tracks. Schulte's theft of the stolen CIA files is the largest data breach in CIA history. From his home computer, Schulte then transmitted the stolen CIA, CIA files to WikiLeaks using anonymizing tools recommended by WikiLeaks to potential leakers, such as the Tails operating system and the Tor browser. On May 5, 2016, having transmitted the stolen CIA files to WikiLeaks, Schulte wiped and reformatted his home's computer internal drives. On March 7, 2017, WikiLeaks began publishing classified data from the stolen files. Between March and November 2017, there were a total of 26 disclosures of classified data from the stolen CIA files that WikiLeaks denominated as Vault 7 and Vault 8. The WikiLeaks disclosures were one of the largest unauthorized disclosures of classified information in the history of the U.S., and Schulte's theft and disclosure immediately and profoundly damaged the CIA's ability to collect foreign intelligence against America's adversaries, placed CIA personnel programs and assets directly at risk, and cost the CIA hundreds of millions of dollars. The effect was described at trial by the former CIA Deputy Director for Digital Innovation as a digital Pearl Harbor, and the disclosure caused exceptionally grave harm to the, to the national security of the U.S. Following the WikiLeaks disclosures, Schulte was voluntarily interviewed on multiple occasions by the FBI in March 2017. During those interviews, Schulte repeatedly lied, including denying being responsible for the theft of the stolen CIA files and for the WikiLeaks disclosures, 
and spinning fake narratives about ways the stolen CIA files could have been obtained from CIA computers in hope of deflecting suspicion away from himself and diverting law enforcement resources to false leads. In March 2017, the FBI searched Schulte's apartment in New York pursuant to a search warrant and recovered, among other things, multiple computers, servers, and other electronic storage devices, including Schulte's personal desktop computer, which Schulte built while living in Virginia and then transported to New York in November 2016. On the desktop computer, FBI agents found layers of encryption hiding tens of thousands of videos and images of child sexual abuse materials, including approximately 3,400 images and videos of disturbing and horrific child pornography and the rape and sexual abuse of children as young as two years old, as well as images of bestiality and sadomasochism. Schulte collected some of these files during his employment with the CIA and continued to stockpile child pornography from the dark web and Russian websites after moving to New York. While detained pending trial in April 2018, Schulte sent a copy of the affidavit in support of the warrant to search his apartment, which a protective order entered by the court prohibiting Schulte from disseminating to reporters from two different newspapers and Schulte acknowledged in pre and recorded phone calls that he knew he was prohibited from sharing the protected material, like the affidavit. Despite being warned by the court not to violate the protective order further, in the summer and fall of 2018, Schulte made plans to wage what he proclaimed to be a, quote, information war against the U.S. government. To pursue these ends, Schulte obtained access to contraband cell phones while in jail that he used to create anonymous, encrypted email and social media accounts. Schulte also attempted to use the contraband cell phones to transmit protective discovery materials to WikiLeaks and planned to use the anonymous email and social media accounts to publish a manifesto and various other postings containing classified information about CIA cyber techniques and cyber tools. In a journal... Schulte wrote that he planned to break up diplomatic relationships. These are quotes. Planned to break up diplomatic relationships, close embassies, and end U.S. occupation across the world. Schulte successfully sent emails containing classified information about the CCI development network and the number of employees in particular CIA cyber intelligence groups to a reporter. As a result of this conduct, on March 9, 2020, Schulte was found guilty at trial of contempt of court and making material false statements. On July 13, 2022, Schulte was found guilty at trial of eight counts, illegal gathering of transmission of national defense information in connection with his theft and disseminating the stolen, stolen CIA files, illegal transmission and attempted transmission of national defense information, unauthorized access to a computer to obtain classified information, and information from a department or agency of the U.S. in connection with his theft of the stolen CIA files, and two counts of causing transmission of harmful computer commands in connection with his theft of the stolen CIA files. Finally, on September 13, 2023, Schulte was found guilty at trial on charges of receiving, possessing, and transporting child pornography. So three different trials to handle all of the charges against this guy. 
in addition to his prison term. Schulte, age 35, of New York, New York, was sentenced to a lifetime of supervised release. Mr. Williams praised the outstanding work of these various outfits. Now, these are no longer allegations. These are facts. And Schulte, Schulte did what WikiLeaks had hundreds, if not thousands, of hackers do which was hack governments on behalf of WikiLeaks, steal information and software, and then transmit it to WikiLeaks. That is because WikiLeaks is not a journalism outfit. WikiLeaks is a hacking outfit. WikiLeaks is an independent, stateless intelligence agency that masquerades as a journalism outfit. Assange is not a journalist. Assange is a leader of hacking groups and a stateless intel agency known as WikiLeaks who disguises himself as a journalist. And just because he puts out information which is useful to us in the info war does not mean that he is an ally and it does not make him a good guy. Now, I have been gathering some materials and I'm planning on doing a show and or a substack um, expressing and substantiating what I just said. And I, I realize that I am going against the mainstream thought on Julian Assange. but I am very much in line with what Trump says about this. Trump had the opportunity to pardon Julian Assange. And Trump said in an interview uh, two years ago, I think it was, that there were good people on both sides of the argument. There were good people on, on, on the side of pardoning Assange, and there were good people on the side of not pardoning him. But there were bad people all on one side of that discussion. And he decided that he would let the courts work it out. And that's what I'm in favor of. I'm in favor of the courts working it out. And I'm thinking um, Julian Assange could be, could be um, extradited any day now to the U.S. And so what I'm thinking of is doing a show where I read to you guys the indictment, the superseding indictment against Julian Assange. Um, so that you can see what the allegations are because they are substantial. Uh, they have witnesses that worked for WikiLeaks who that's, they testify WikiLeaks. The one, the, one of the quotes from it is WikiLeaks is the largest hacking organization in the world, but they disguise themselves as a journalism outfit. Now back on this Schulte guy, of course, these connects to the drops. And um, one of the things I saw where I posted about this, and I said, you know, I got much to say about this case and matters related to it, but just for now, I'm going to direct people's attention to this. I saw in my comments and I saw in um, comments on uh, Ghost of Patrick, Patrick Henry's uh, post about it. 
I saw people saying, yeah, well, you can't believe that because the FBI will plant child porn on your computer to get you convicted. And I want to address that right now. At no time in the case that I have found, I went and looked at Schulte's docket. At no time did he say that the child pornography that was on his computer was planted there. What he said was that it wasn't really a crime anyway. What he said was that it belonged to someone else. He just hosted it on his computer. He called it a victimless crime. So for anybody saying that this guy was framed with child pornography on his computer in order to get a conviction, he doesn't even say that. He said it belonged to someone else. He just hosted it. And hosting child pornography is not a crime. So even if you think that, eh, this guy committed a crime, but he hacked the CIA, and I hate the CIA, and they deserve to be hacked. So in the end, the net effects of him hacking the CIA might, on balance, be good in the info war. I think we can all still agree, F this guy. I hope he rots and dies in prison. Just on, just on the abusive child porn images that he hosted and was happy to host and does not feel an ounce of guilt about hosting on his computer and helping to distribute. Right? I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that. So, yeah. I'll be working on this uh, WikiLeaks Assange thing, and I'll put it out at some point. Um, but don't be surprised if suddenly, uh, one day when there's, if there's ever a slow news cycle <laughs> if we ever get a slow news cycle a couple days in a row don't be surprised if i suddenly break out the assange indictment and read it on the show um just because i want to log that in and get everybody i, I, I want to do that and just present it and hey if if assange is extradited and stands trial here in the u.s and let's say, let's say Assange is proven, let's say he beats the charges. Okay. I'll be happy about that. Like if he beats the charges and proves the allegations against him in court are, are wrong, or if he, if he defeats them, then like, sweet, 
You know, I want, I want, just like Trump, I want Assange to have his day in court. But this idea that Assange was running and a, that WikiLeaks is a journalism outfit and that Assange himself is a journalist is, is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. And I will prove that to you in a, in a future show. You can do your own research and you can pretty easily find out that that's not the truth. Um, but, you know, if you're, I'm just giving you guys a heads up that that's, that's in my, that's in my pile. That's something I'm working on on the side and I'm going to, I'm going to bring that out. So, um, yep. All right. I got to run. Got to go back on dad duty. So. Thank you guys very much for the rants. If you enjoyed the show, hit the thumbs up. If you want to support the show, if you want to, um, you know, go beyond that, visit my link tree uh, where you can find me on social media and you can find all of my affiliate links, you know, get yourself some honey, get yourself some barbecue sauce, some seasoning, salsas, chili, all that stuff, manly cans, all of that. Um, hit those links. That really helps me out. And uh, you guys have a great day. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. But we are going to win this war. God bless. I'll see you later. Wait a minute. Where's the why isn't the music playing? What's going on here? That was so professional. There we go.